good times, moonlight racing from the grave. String band playing more that honky tonk's pretty young thing going dancing in the rain. Welcome back to Ars Politica. I started a YouTube channel and I recorded a response video to Kevin DeYoung's review of my book, uh, The Case for Christian Nationalism. Because it's a, a video review, I was able to put the, the review on the screen and talk through it and quote from it. I didn't really have in mind that it would that I'd have it also as an audio. And so uh, in, in the following, uh, you'll be able to hear it, but at times it might be, I, and I apologize, confusing to know when I'm quoting him. Hopefully it's clear enough. But nevertheless, well, what follows is the review, uh, my response to his review. Uh, you can also watch it on YouTube, uh, on my YouTube channel. I ask you to go there to subscribe because it actually takes a thousand subscribers to monetize. Uh, so if you could subscribe, I'd appreciate that. But um, anyway, without further ado, uh, here is my uh, response to Kevin DeYoung. Welcome back. So this is going to be a response video, uh, a response to Kevin DeYoung's review that he wrote many, many months ago. I guess it's approaching about 10 months ago. I have not uh, responded to it in any, any formal way. And uh, people have asked over the months when or if I'm going to respond to the review. Uh, there's a few reasons why I have not. Uh, one is that there's been a lot of reviews. Uh, there's been a lot to interact with. And uh, the the other, uh, the I guess the second one would be uh, that I didn't think I had a good medium to do it. I didn't really want to, I, I wasn't sure about responding to it in, uh, in text uh, and um, like write a response essay. And probably because I think it would have been kind of tedious and that I would have really just been kind of quoting myself, my own book, back in the response. And I, I didn't really want to take the time to do that. And I didn't see if it would actually accomplish much. And this kind of leads to the third reason, is that I th that much of DeYoung's review of my book, well, first of all, I think there's a lot of inaccuracy in it, first of all, just in the description of what I believe he's imported premises in his, into his review that I do not affirm. Uh, he at, at times assert things often that uh, I do not, th he simply asserts the opposite of my conclusion rather than actually demonstrating its error or demonstrating his own conclusions. And so it would be kind of this tedious review of, I'm not sure responding to an act, any uh, actual arguments and that, he, uh, you know, very many arguments that he actually put forward. So that, that's another reason. Also, I guess the biggest reason, uh, and I have nothing against Kevin Young. He seems like a very nice, a good minister, good pastor, good academic, you know, his PhD. I know he cited me before in the past, before this Christian nationalism thing came about. Uh, we kind of had similar interests, I think, with uh, his PhD was on Witherspoon. I did a master's on her master's thesis on Witherspoon. He's cited in my dissertation. So we have overlapping interests and probably similar views on, on Witherspoon for the most part. Um, but so I don't have any, anything against the guy at all. He seems like a guy, good guy to have, a, you know, share a beer with. Um, but it's hard for me to compete with Kevin DeYoung's credibility, by which I mean he's over the years developed a certain sort of ethos to, to think of like the classical Aristotelian notion of rhetoric, which is that he has this rapport with people. And so kind of DeYoung can kind of get away with asserting things 
and having people kind of rally around that. Now, I'm not like criticizing having credibility in that regard. You need people who can kind of lead people uh, by simple assertion alone. That's that's kind of what uh, a lot of times it's what, what leadership is. But in an academic setting, it becomes very difficult when uh, when uh, so if I say he mischaracterized or misunderstands me, the response could be, "Well, no, he actually understands you," or the rest, uh, and you know you're wrong, or you're you know I'm I'm lying or trying to walk something back or trying to soften something, do a Martin Bailey. Um, or they'll say, yeah, well, maybe he misunderstood you, but you're not clear. You're not clear enough and you, and it's your fault. Um, or they'll just accuse me of lying. Uh, and that's, and I have, I mean, I have experienced that a lot throughout the year. In fact, one of the most, one of the most, um, surprising, which it should not have been a surprising is how determined people are to affirm the opposite of what I believe. Even when I state that several times, I don't affirm it. When I, th- when I actually show and demonstrate why I don't affirm it, when I show things that I said in the book that don't, that are the opposite of it, people are still kind of, um, very consistent and persistent in mischaracterizing me, uh, as in, in the worst possible light. So all that put together, I mean, there's more than that. There's also, there's, there've been people who, that sort of people who talk about how it's bad to have a hermeneutic of suspicion. They'll talk about arenicism. And yet they'll be counting words uh, in sentences to see if it adds up to 14. If I'm if I'm sort of some sort of like a esoteric writer that's trying to indicate some sort of hidden meaning within the number of sentences in my words. Um, or I use the word instauration a couple of times and you look up instauration like that's a curious word. Oh, it turns out some like anti-Christian pagan had, an, had a magazine that was called instauration back in the late 80s and early 90s. That must be what Wolf is pointing to. It can't be the fact that Inspiration is comes from inspiratio, which is a Latin word meaning renewal, but also kind of a movement forward, sort of a restoration looking to the future. <clears throat> so uh, there's just been a lot of things I've experienced. And so I wasn't, I, it didn't seem worth the time to respond to uh, Kevin DeYoung, but part of uh, it's been nagging upon me to respond to this. And so here I am. And I, I feel like this, at, at least, at the very least, it will check the box in my mind that I responded to this review that people keep asking me about. I can point to um, there, are, and and perhaps other people will be con- convinced by it. But I would just ask the listener to. I know uh, I'm, I'm not denying Kevin DeYoung's kind of credibility uh, that he. I'm not denying his good faith. I'm not denying that that he made a a, a very strong attempt to understand and and respond to my book. But I, but I would just ask that you would take what I'm saying and consider it on an academic plane that is between two equal, uh, I guess, academics. I don't know if you care. We both have PhDs, and just take it from there. That's all I ask the uh, the listener um, to to do. Um, so let's. Uh, I, I, I let me pull this up. I think here we go. I hope everyone can see that well. Difficult task now. Um, the first third of it is kind of like he talks about me and there's some positive stuff. You can read the review yourself if you want. So I'm not going to respond to the positive stuff. This probably will already be a long review anyway or a response. So I'll just leave it at that. Um, he Once he kind of transitions into the, the criticism, and I'd say probably three quarters, two thirds of it is criticism. Um, he starts, so the, the first part is a difficult task. And he says why it's difficult to review this book, which I mean, it's, it's kind of a compliment because I, yeah, it's, it's full of a sort of retrieval theology. 
uh, like historical theology. It's full of full of like political philosophy, some theologies in it. There's a chapter essentially on history and historical development in the early like early American period. So I mean, it's kind of a compliment. He says it's long, and, and I and I cover a lot of ground from philosophy, theology, political theory. So kind of a compliment, but I I, I guess I understand that. That's not really a critique so much as. Uh, it would be challenging, and it's actually one of the uh, what I, one reason why I didn't want to respond to uh, De Young is partly because he's a little over the all over the place as well in his uh, in his critique, and it just would have been I think a kind of a, a tedious thing to write. But uh, he says also it's a personal book because of the I think that's in the um, like the little bio at the or the uh, the what is it called the uh, acknowledgments. That's right. Yeah, so you can read that there. I it is personal, uh, but I don't want. I don't know why that really matters. Actually, it's personal because I'm not just theorizing about the future. It's not like I'm I'm talking about ancient Rome, and making some sort of radical claim about ancient Rome. I'm talking about what I, you know, the principles I want to apply in in American public life, which are Christian. So. Yeah, I guess it's personal in that sense, but it, I, it shouldn't. You shouldn't think that because he's criticizing me or anyone's criticizing me that I'm taking it personally as if they're trying to hold my family down or you know that's not it. But anyway, that whatever. Um, yeah, I, the, and he he says here I stack the rhetorical deck against critical engagement. I don't I don't think that's actually a fair claim. I, I do say it's an older style, and I try as best I can uh, as someone who likes early modern style argumentation to go about doing that. Um, and I was hoping, in fact, that people would respond in kind and, uh, and some people did and, and most people did not. I think the Young's review actually does not, um, in, in a sense, apply a rigorous, uh, I would say early modern sort of standard of argumentation. Um, but he says that I, that I, I kind of violate that perhaps I, I did at times. I think he, like he cites my epilogue. And my epilogue is kind of this unique, very kind of different thing. It comes from a, it's a sort of different genre. It's, it's somewhat of a new right type genre. I'll get to that a, at, near the end. But I say very clearly up front that I'm tra transitioning. I'm going to speak more freely. Like I, I'm going to speak more freely, meaning I'm not, I'm not going to kind of hold myself to this kind of more early modern type, like statements of the question. And here's the principle. And here's the, Here's the pre, like making all these distinctions. I'm just going to say it straight. It's like I, in, in some way, it's like no quarter November that Doug Wilson does. And I said, I'm going to give myself the liberty to do that. And so um, what, is that contradictory? I mean, it's an epilogue, you know, so I, it's not like it's in the middle of the book, but whatever. Uh, I, I was been very yeah, anyway, I've already said that. Let's keep going on. Yeah. All right. Well, let me also first. I well, actually, you know, let me go to the, the top here. There was a, a section. He kind of summarizes his review. Um, yeah, he says that. So he says. Uh, so look at right here. The message. The message. That paragraph right. The ethnicity shouldn't mix. Oh, I don't actually say that. I'll get into that more later. It's really unfortunate that he would start it off with that statement that ethnicity should not mix. In fact, I directly say that intermarriage can bring people into an ethnogenesis. That's almost a direct quote. Um, and so I'm perfectly okay with eth ethnicities 
mixing together if that's what they want to do. I'm also perfectly okay with Greeks staying Greeks and Italians staying Italians and Anglos, you know, Anglo-Saxons staying Anglo-Saxons. Um, okay with his, you know, uh, Hispanics or probably more specifically, you know, Venezuelans wanting to be Venezuelan or, or Puerto Ricans want to be Puerto Ricans. If they want to do that as a collective entity, if you can identify that, then they should be allowed to affirm that for themselves. If they say, let's, we can mix and we, we're going to mix together, then let them do that as well. I mean, there's examples of both in history and sometimes in just classical literature. Uh, and I'll get to it in a second. But yeah, I, I have no problem with ethnicities mixing. Um, and so we'll just, heretics can be killed. Notice the words can be killed. Yeah, I think arch heretics um, in, certain, in certain conditions, I think it would be at, at times, it would be prudent to have some sort of like, capital punishment of heretics that doesn't mean I, I want that in the american context notice he says can so there's a lot of mo i think it's permissible in principle and this i'll get to this distinction later but um it's just unfor unfortunate that anyway uh that violent revolution is already justified okay well violent if if you, the, if they're if we're in tyrannical conditions right now and you believe violent revolution is justified in those sort of conditions, conditions, then it would be justified in a sense. I mean, there's a lot more to this, but just saying that statement and not clarifying other things I say in that chapter where it has to be feasible and suitable and acceptable. I don't think he talks about this later in the review. I mean, we, we do, as Americans, we tend to believe that violent revolution is permissible because I mean, we found it as the result of one. So, I mean, he can, is a Witherspoon scholar. I mean, does, does he disagree with Witherspoon's view on that as well? I mean, I just not very clear. Does that mean I'm calling for a violent revolution now? No. Is it what I say? It's even justified. Well, justified in sense of maybe fundamental principle, but that doesn't mean it's actually the, the, it's going to be, it's suitable for the situation that it's feasible in terms of success. And that the, the aftermath is actually going to end up being acceptable. That doesn't mean it's morally justified in our particular application at a time. So in, in a way, he's like stacking the deck against my own book by making claims that I actually, you know, to be a nuance, bro, I, I added a lot of nuance to. <laughs> um, maybe I, I, so it's frustrating. And what our nation needs is a charismatic Caesar-like leader to raise our consciousness and galvanize the will of the people. Yeah, like, like, um, like George Washington. Yeah, I'll, I'll get to this more. Um, and I, I guess in, in the book, I kind of wish that I did point this more clearly that this idea of the Christian prince um, in different contexts can look very different. So I think George Washington was a type of Christian prince, or at least a type of prince. I mean, we can debate all this all day long, but as I describe him, he was that sort of person. And, but, okay. Uh, and be, may bear resembles a certain blood and soil nationalisms. So another unfortunate connection. He's spoiling kind of from the beginning. He's sort of um, he's uh, stating the uh, in a way the things as worse as possible, and then comparing it to uh, mid twentieth century fascism. Okay, um, one of the problems with this is just the formal fallacy, which is the undistributed middle fallacy. You can look it up. Which is just because people that there's resemblances of one thing, if just because two things share a, 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 a property in some regard, like a charismatic leader, that doesn't mean those two things are the same thing. So that the formal structure would be like dogs have four legs, cats have four legs, therefore cats are dogs. 
That's a formal fallacy called the fallacy of the undistributed middle. Okay. The fact that you might read my book and see charismatic leader, and the first thing you think is fascism, you are you are actually committing that fallacy. When in just as much you, you could you could that the, the what I described could be realized in someone like like George Washington or other figures you may not think are just utterly evil, but who led their people well. You know, you think of these like Leonidas or someone like that. If you want to think uh, Pericles, this sort of this popular charismatic leader who led their people that we talk about and don't demonize every left and right. But then you have to do the, the un undistributed middle fallacy, which goes straight to blood and soil nationalism. This, I, I've seen this over and over and over. It's that Wolf thinks that there should be an intergenerational connection of people in place. That's blood and soil nationalism. So that, that means, okay, your grandfather bought this land. He's, he worked that land until he died. It might be buried on one corner of that land. You inherited that land. And that land is the same thing your father grew up on. And maybe your father owned that land. And now you own that land. You're telling me that there's no special connection be, uh, between you and that land through your loved ones? That somehow that that, that is no more. It's uh, it's it, that's just as strong as if you had just bought it and it was someone else's that you had no connection to. Is that blood and soil right there? Of course, it's, of course, it, it has a sort of blood and soil element to it. Because your people, your grandfather worked to death on this land. So did your father and you're going to, and you hope that your children do too. So is that blood and soil? Oh, well, it overlaps, you know, so it's, it's again, undistributed middle fallacy. Oh, that's blood and soil nationalism. I do think that a nation um, is something where there's a pre that, that before you're born, there's a, a social order that you're born into. And there's a social order that you're going to bring your kids into and your grandkids into. And that's based upon a blood connection between you and them. That doesn't mean the nation itself is a nation of blood cousins. I say this explicitly in the book. But nevertheless, there has to be, there is going to be a connection between people and place in a sense of blood because your grandfather fought in World War II next to the someone else's grandfather and you have a common story. That doesn't mean somehow if you take a DNA test, hey, we're genetically similar. We must be part of the same nation. That's not what I'm saying. If I, if I'm sure I could sit down with Kevin DeYoung, we could have a two hour podcast talking about our grandfathers and what they did in World War II or, and what our grandmothers did at the time. Or maybe, maybe we have stories about, you know, like the World War I or the Civil War. My wife has stories about uh, her grandfather in the Korean War. So other people about the Vietnam War. We have these connections to our loved ones that then kind of bind us together. So it's not a matter of we're all blood cousins, you know. That a nation is not simply it is not people who share necessarily the same DNA. It's people who share the same great events, the same experiences through the loved ones they, they can trace back. This is why people like Aristotle and Aquinas would say you should not get citizenship until like the second or third generation. Why is that? Because you've not only are you brought up into the customs of the place, but you also have a generational connection to the place and the people. So you might be a total outsider at one generation, then three generations down the line, you're a total insider because you took part in common struggles, common great events, common customs. You, you know, so, um, yeah. So of course, like, so, so it's very unfortunate. Uh, resemble certain blood and soil nationalisms. Uh, it's a complete 
I think it's irresponsible rhetoric. And I, I would say that to his face, uh, that this, that he shouldn't do that. I have, you know, no connection and I don't affirm nationalism or even, or, or, or like any sort of fascism, whatever that, whatever that actually is. Uh, and I've been accused of, I, one guy wants to demand that I, I'm an Italian fascist. I don't know. What, but again, it's, it's look up undistributed middle fallacy. This happens all the time. Uh, with, within our minds, because we have a, after World War II, when we talk about the post-war consensus, one aspect of the post-war consensus is simply the any resemblance that is in our minds somehow, even when it's like Hollywood, pure Hollywood, we go, oh, that's fascism. We do the same thing with communism and socialism. Right? We do the same thing. Uh, it seems more prevalent with fascism on both left and right. We'll then call things fascist because they they do the the logical fallacy. Oh, you want a strong man leader? Oh, I'm picturing some Mussolini and Hitler right now. Right. So, uh, got me all worked up. But it's not nationalism honors and represents the name of Christ. So that's just a like a blanket statement. Um, it's kind of strange so so none of those things but anyway well let's just keep moving on that's just one part and then he says kind of ni nice things he he uh, attacks russell Moore with me that's that's nice he attacks winsomeness i don't remember if i attacked that in the book maybe in the epilogue <laughs> um all right nation and ethnicity oh the most controversial part by his own definition, they're idiosyncratic. Well, I wish that I really wish that he had looked at the my definitions closer, because I think the problem with this critique of his critique here is that he imports things that are not that are nowhere in my actual um, my actual book into this to to, to critique me. Um, the former cover contains a picture of America with a cross in the middle, so the book would seem to be about the nation state we know as the United States of America. He's written many books. He knows very well that I don't choose the cover. I do like the cover because it's pretty cool. Um, but that doesn't mean that if you open up page um, one to two, you know, like one to 350, that every line is what I'm prescribing for America. This book is nine chapters. It's 10 chapters plus an intro and an epilogue. Chapters one through nine do not mention America, or at least don't talk about it in, in, at any sort of significant length. They talk about the West. In general, maybe I mentioned Mary, I don't remember, but it's not until chapter 10 where I start talking about the United States. And throughout one through nine, chapters one through nine, I'm constantly saying there's principles and there's prudence. There's pers uh, uh, permissibility and suitability or what's suitable or uh, appropriate for the people and the place and their traditions and their, their self-understanding. Okay, so this is just classical political thought. But then I get to chapter 10. Chapter 10 is on America, where I try to show the compatibility between the principles I, I lay and the, uh, the American founding. That's the main thing. More could be written on this, on America, and especially the 19th century, and I hope to do that someday. Um, but uh, so it's just, it's it, right off the bat, there's kind of a misunderstanding of what this is. This is a Christian political theory that is applicable everywhere. And then when applied to America, it's going to look different than when it's applied in Poland or Hungary or Russia or England. It's going gonna, it's gonna to look different in different places in America. So, um, but anyway, well, I'm getting ahead of myself here. 
Yeah. So uh, there is that mis. So when, when you're reading my book, you have to understand that I'm not following like Hazoni's nation statism. So when he says the virtue of nationalism, he means mo modern na nation state. I mean peoples that can be inside under a state. So if you think like Iraq, Iraq has a lot of Kurds in the north part. They're under the state of Iraq, the government of Iraq, and they often seek after a certain kind of autonomy as a separate people group. So you can, so instead of, so it is, you know, I understand people might be confused if they don't actually read what I say, or if they just assume what, what these terms kind of mean. They think nationalism is like, united with like heavy-handed statism that would be false given to what i what i say but like the kurds would and they always do they, they want to seek after certain autonomy to regulate themselves i don't know if they want to like break away and have their own government um but uh but like anyone they want to have a certain element of autonomy so if you take go to like slovakia in slovakia there's a significant hungarian population they they tend to live separate i mean the same is true of romania so there's romanians and then there's like Hungarians in Romania, same is true with Hungary, but they kind of live among themselves. I mean, there's some overlap in like Slovakia, but when when they talk, when people talk about minority rights in a place like Slovakia, they mean like Hungarians as a collective entity of as a nation, as a people group, want to stay in Slovakia, but they want to they want to have some kind of autonomy to regulate themselves as a separate people group without you know entirely. Uh, like violate without entirely getting like um you know having their own nation state so that's kind of what that's what i'm getting at. Or, the, or or you can have a or you have a nation that is in a state would be like hungary so hungary is a a people under a state and they so in that sense their nation and their nation state are, are kind of the same thing right but i make that clear in one part i think people just can't divorce that from their mind i understand the confusion but i did state it I, one thing I didn't do in the book is I, I refused to like constantly state things that I already stated. Um, maybe that brought out about some confusion. Um, but uh, I, I part of me after my experience over the last year is to think that that wouldn't actually have changed anything because I, I, I repeatedly say, yeah, you can do this, but it may not be prudent. It may not be ever prudent to do that, but you still can do it in principle. I say that over and over and over. And I still get people say, Wolf wants to round up the Baptists and drown them. Am I still like at least every other day someone tweets that I want to round up Baptists and kill them? So, you know, excuse me for, for not thinking it would have changed much. Um, similarity principle, absolutely. So I this is the most common thing in all, all of experience, even among Christians in the past. People tend to be drawn towards people who are similar. This doesn't have to be, in fact, this is not going to be like necessarily physical characteristics. But cultural characteristics, when a Somalian shows up to the United States legally or illegally, where do they go? They go to uh, where are they at? They're like in Michigan. They're like in St. Louis and they go up to like Minnesota or um, Michigan. Right. When you're Muslim, you go up to Michigan or Minnesota. When you are Hispanic, you go a lot, oftentimes to L.A. or other places where your family are. You speak Spanish. You go to these people. People seek out similarity. People tend to marry people who are kind of similar to them, not just like racially, but just culturally. So of course we're drawn. And But why would we be drawn to people who are similar to us? Well, because being around similar people is how essentially how you live well. You understand each other's language, first of all. You have similar social customs. They have kids 
that are presumably learning the same stories, the same myths, the same maybe, maybe perhaps political ideals. Um, you you have then people who would be able to train your kids in the sort of dances or the music or uh, the way of life you grew up in. I mean, this of course it's true that we have a desire for similarity. It, to, to deny that is just absurd. And I'm saying that when I say we have that desire, like part of my argument in the book was that there's a reason why like that is true. It's not, it's not that I'm simply like recognizing that it's the case, of course, because you know, that's like, I think obvious, but why would that be the case? Why would God, as my, I argue, have an, in, we would give us an incl inclination to group around people who are similar because that's a condition for living well. It's a condition for living well because you have a common understanding, common language, common dialect, common this and that, and you have confidence around these people. You have confidence you know what to do. I mean, you open the door, just a basic one, you open the door for women. Why? That's something that I'm, I'm assuming Kevin DeYoung trains his sons to do that. It's an utterly a cultural practice. In fact, some people are from cultures may not even understand why you're doing it. Like, can't women do it themselves? In fact, a lot of feminists think that. Like, what, what we can't do it for ourselves? It's a purely cultural practice. And then, in fact, if we don't do it, if your son doesn't do it, you say, you should open the door for women, son. And your son can repeat back and say, dad, that's, that's adiaphora. That's just cultural. Why are you binding my conscience to something that's not in the Bible? He could do that. And then the average evangelical father would just be, you know, his jaw would drop and be like, oh, I just told my congregation that the other day. Um, <laughs> so it's, um, anyway. So of course, not only, we have the inclination because God designed us to have certain desires that are for our good. Now they can be abused. You can exclude people unfairly. Every principle, every desire, every good thing can be abused. But the abuse of a thing doesn't doesn't destroy it. It doesn't force us to abandon it. And so this is absolutely the truth. And, and so then Kevin Young raises, it relativizes the sense of family. I've heard this repeatedly. Okay, relativize, well, then what's the principle, right? Well, then what is the, okay, it relativizes the family. Then what is the principle of our connection, our uh, loving similarities? No one, they don't actually like just saying that it relativizes some kind of like natural inclination doesn't answer the question. It just says, oh, it can't be as strong as what Wolf is saying. Okay, well, how strong should it be? It just pushes the question to, a, to uh, it, it doesn't actually answer the, uh, address the issue. All it's, it's simply asserting, well, it's, it, yeah, it's, it's essentially a negative. It's saying it's not as strong as Wolf says. It doesn't answer in the affirmative, well, how strong ought, to, ought it be? Tears down the, the walls between people, Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. Okay, well, it tears down language barriers. So you're saying, you're telling me that the gospel introduced a new language. Are we all supposed to be speaking English or Hebrew or something? The, obviously, it didn't break down that wall. I mean, the, the language you speak is indifferent, right? Like no, I mean, I guess you just just assuming that, that you know, no language is better than another language. So it's purely cultural, purely social. There's no kind of English didn't spring from heaven. It didn't actually arise from the earth. It didn't pop into existence and God say, speak this. Those came, those are, there's a particular thing. Did it tear down? Well, of course, there's a barrier between someone who cannot speak English and someone who can only speak English. 
You can't even attend the same worship service because the sermon's going to be in English, right? So, if it so if it, it, the gospel did not introduce a set of customs, it didn't say you're going to open the door for women. It didn't say you um, that like you know certain gender practices we have, Billy Graham rule, whatever. It it didn't have the uh, it didn't doesn't come with these new set universal set of culture cultural customs that now we have to conform to okay um and it, it, it and again it doesn't like the young and doesn't actually deal with the argument because my argument for similarity is not simply like a bare command god says we ought to love the similar no i'm saying if you think about the human good the reason we seek after people with similarity in our civil community and why we would seek some kind of cultural homogeneity is precisely because it's a condition for living well, is you understand one another, you have common ends, you can actually have a sense of a thick conception of the good when you have a, a people of cultural homogeneity. Also, it means that when you when you bring you know when you bring your kid into the world, you're bringing that kid into a social environment. And therefore, these and thereby these other people within that social group will, in a way, disciple your kids. I mean, we talk, church talks about this all the time. Oh, the the world discipling your kids. Well, if you lived in a cultural homogenous society that was a good society, then that's that's actually good. I mean, the reason don't you like just think about how the world is today. When I grew up, it wasn't exactly like this. The world is today like you you as a parent have to be hyper vigilant on who your kids are going to be with. Especially if they're young kids, or no, any any kid. It wasn't. It didn't used to be that way. Now it is that way. Just the neighbor kid could walk out one day, and the he could be a boy in a dress with green hair. Now, it didn't used to be that way. So I would prefer that to, to have some kind of general, strong standards of cultural hom homogeneity uh, that would um, help and help enforce. Anyway, all right, keep going. I'm rambling on here. Okay, he also says, I also fail to see how Wolf's rejection of the West universalizing tendency squares the Wolf's use of natural theology and natural law. So I, I don't, I frankly am kind of dumbfounded on this. The natural law is a set, is essentially a set of principles that need application. The natural law is not like, like Billy Graham's rule, for, for example, is not a, a principle of natural law is an application of law or it's an application of wisdom it's a particular determination from principles given the given the circumstances to an environment for action that's what natural theology and natural law are so you can affirm that natural theology and natural law are universal let's just take natural law if you make more sense natural law is a universal applicable to every single person and yet also say that those principles of natural law or those laws are actually fulfilled differently in different places. Um, and that's actually good. So how do you dress? What, what's the appropriate way to dress at this or the, uh, this or that event that could be very different in different places, also in different times. Like it would be very inappropriate for you to dress like you're a 17th century English Lord. When you go to someone else's wedding, Whereas back in 17th century, it'd be perfectly appropriate. Why would it be inappropriate for you? Because now you're you're the one who's sticking out in the middle of a crowd instead of the bride and groom. 
So the circumstances change, but at the same time, uh, so one would be wrong. One is right. If they, you know, nowadays we sometimes wear sh like shorts and a t-shirt to a, a wedding that would be very inappropriate a few years ago. So things change over time, but they still affirm the same principle. Okay. So I don't understand like the universalizing tendency. You can still have massive difference, just like you have massive difference just in human personality. Like just massive differences in human personality, yet they're all human. They're all human personalities. So you could have diversity that flow from a sort of uh, one principle. I mean, I, I, okay, well. He leaves a bunch of questions unanswered. Uh, yeah, so he refuses to play by those rules being called racist or kinist or xenophobe. But he's very, but so, but you know, I refuse to do it. But the young says, "Why didn't you do it?" Okay, um, I actually did do it a couple places. I did say it's not a racialist or white nationalist project. Um, but what I'm not going to do, and I, as I explained, is say I'm not a racist. Well, because what is racism? No one knows what racism is. To say not a racist is just now to com commit you to denying whatever they they hurl at you, no matter how ridiculous. So no, I'm not going to do that. Now, uh, marketing is that each group has a right to be for itself. Yeah, absolutely. So if if a group of pe a people group um, is a sort of collective entity, they're going to say, yeah, we are as a collective entity. We seek after our good and we like our customs and way of life and we want to protect it. And so they can be for ourselves. Say so no nation properly conceived is composed of two or more ethnicities. So yeah, I... I'm denying, like I said, the nation state concept where you could have what essentially a multinational nation state. Um, and I'm, I'm kind of focusing, narrowing more in on these people groups like the Hungarians and Slovakia. Okay. So people beat up on this phrase, instinct to conduct every life among someone who is natural and, and being natural to spoil your good. So I'm, I'm, you know, natural meaning as you're created, God created you that way. Um, I'm using more kind of scholastic, classical, I guess, language and talking about what's natural. Um, the, the average, like I've, I've, oftentimes people in the evangelical world will say natural, meaning like we're naturally evil, that kind of stuff. But I'm using it as create. I think the young gets that. And, and something that's natural is for your good, but which means that if, if God created you, I mean, God didn't, God created you with, a, with capabilities and a capacity to fulfill his law. And when you exercise those capacities, and fulfill that law you are, are you're actually that's your good you're achieving your good and it's good for you to violate god's law is actually not good for you so there is a there's a suitability there's a suitability between the natural law and your good perfect suitability such that if you are to violate that natural law it's actually bad for you your only good is obeying god so what I'm saying then is that that instinct for people, that natural instinct to live uh, with similar people is actually for your good for the very arguments I've presented earlier in this, in this video. Okay. Then to exclude an outgroup is to recognize universal good for man, which, which is to say uh, you, a people group may want to exclude an out, an out group or uh, understand like the difference and have some sort of, element of exclusion simply because having solidarity with your people group 
is actually good. So it's good for uh, it's good for the other people to, to be for themselves. It's good for you to be for themselves, just like a family. Like a, a family does this all the time. A family, it's universally good for each family to think first about itself over against other families. It's good for you as a parent to think first about your kids over other kids. Now, there are times when you need to go help another kid. There are times when one family needs to help another family. They need to look after another family. Just like the you know, good Samaritan, he's, he's uh, it's perfectly fine um, thinking about himself and his people, and then he sees someone on the side of the road, he ought to help them, okay? So there's, but ordinarily, people are going to prioritize their own people, and that's just like you'll prior, prioritize your own family, and that is because if everyone did that, it would maximize good. If, if no one, if no one had a priority of love or priority of action, then there wouldn't actually be as much good in the world. You need to, uh, this, um, each person is called to have a specific particular responsibility for a people, whether it's, you know, yourself, you have responsibility for yourself, responsibility for your family, you have responsibility for your co community, your extended family, or what might call kin, and your nation at large, you have these responsibilities that are for them. Now, it might be that if you have a extra, like a, a higher calling, that calling might be to be a missionary or evangelist to another country. In that sense, or you might be called to be like a prophet, like Jeremiah, where he's you know he's 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 saying these things would be kind of hard to say. I mean, Calvin says this in his commentary on Jeremiah, where he says it several times, where it's like it had to be hard for Jeremiah to constantly attack his own people. I mean, nowadays it's weird. Psychologically, people love attacking their own people. But back then, uh, generally speaking, you shouldn't enjoy screaming um, uh, horrible things about your community. Um, because, and and uh, and Calvin actually had, had to, like he said, that, that, that natural instinct for people in place had to be kind of overridden um, for this extraordinary calling that Jeremiah, this is true for all, all the prophets, right? So I'm not saying there aren't like extraordinary callings that would lead you to go to Kenya or Kenyans to come here or whatever it is. Um, but the ordinary person, you know, the, the, the regular person, this will be true for. Yeah. And the, the most suitable condition for a group of people to select to is uh, one of cultural similarity. Yeah, that is true. That means that everyone knows what to do, uh, how to act. They know what's appropriate and suitable. Uh, they can have confidence in action because they know the people around them won't judge them. They have common expectations of conduct, uh, and it's a much less chaotic world. Uh, so it also means that you can confront people and challenge them and say, that's wrong. This is, this is right. Um, so yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, one thing to notice that, that it, and this is common in the review is he, he, it kind of goes back to his, his credibility is that he doesn't really need to show these things are bad because like De Young kind of embodies the normal, like for the PCA world. I don't mean the normal secular world. And I don't even really mean this as like an insult, but he does kind of embody this kind of normal PCA guy. He's like the intellectual wing of the normal, you know? Uh, and so he can say things and without an argument and say, well, this is not normal. And that's it. Like, okay, well, what's the argument? Like, I think one, one thing to keep in mind is that my book is not, except for maybe the epilogue, it's not just a series of, of statements or assertions. It's I try to make arguments for all these things. So what do we do with these statements? Is the main concern about immigration policy for a nation state? Well, that's 
one question that would arise, but my book is not about immigration. Um, I do mention it, but um, you don't have to be a left-wing watchdog to wonder how these similar arguments work out in practice. Uh, so I, he says, I, I reject the racialist principle. Um, but it's an open question how much cooperation to get out of this blacks, whites, not to mention Asian, Hispanics, and Americans will ever share or if they ever try to live and worship together. So I didn't say anything about worshiping together. I do at one point say that it's you know basically permissible to have separate ethnic churches. I mean, that makes makes sense because if, if, the, if the church is going to be what so many evangelical leaders want it to be, you know, that, that is like have this sort of gospel culture that's going to supply everything you need. Well, it's hard to see how ethnic communities wouldn't want to have their own churches because then they're around people who understand them, who have common struggles, um, common languages, common um, common expectations for their children. I mean, the, so yeah, it would make sense. That, but, but I think it would be actually be I think it would actually be kind of borderline heretical to say that a church could exclude someone based upon ethnicity. So it would be wrong if, for whatever reason, I wanted to join an ethnic Chinese church or an English speaking ethnic Chinese church, it would be wrong of them to exclude me. I don't think they, you know, I don't know any of that would, but yeah, just like it would be wrong for any church that would be kind of majority Anglo to say, no, we don't want, you know, we don't want the other people in here. You should go to your own church. That'd be wrong because the, the, the church is a sort of manifestation of the kingdom of Christ, which is of course open to all. So, um, but nevertheless, I, I can see why people would want to go here or there, depending on that ethnicity, especially if the church is going to supply more than just these like eternal goods of eternal life, but supply significantly uh, of your needs for temporal life as well. Um, I also think that there, this is where he start he begins to conflate ethnicity and race, which is very common in the discourse, but it's explicitly it's something I explicitly reject in the book. And so I wish he had stuck with my actual definition. He, he, I mean, he recognized that it was idiosyncratic from the start, um, but he didn't do, uh, he, he, so I, I mean, I write there, racialist principle. I, I, I don't know. Like, I, I've said repeatedly that, eth, that, that the way I use ethnicity is largely cultural, which means it's not based upon physical characteristics. And what it, what it seems to be, and I think in this review, DeYoung in the back of his mind is affirming he would seem to, or at least is ascribing to me, that ethnicity as a culture is biologically determined. Now, I'm assuming he would reject that if I claim that, but it's that I don't know how his argument would work otherwise. He's saying, Wolf affirms cultural similarity, so I don't know how people can work together, blacks and whites, and others can work together. Okay, so... Are you saying that there's a black culture that's determined physical characteristics determine culture? I don't. I don't think he would affirm that. Um, Asians, is that because they're Asian uh, physically that they have a different uh, a different way of life than whites or blacks or Hispanics? So what is it? Again, he's jumping into that racialist frame when I'm talking about ethnicity as sort of culture. Now, why, I guess this is an opportunity for me to say, why did I use ethnicity and not just culture? I understand the confusion on that, though I think I was clear on what I meant by the term. Um, but still, uh, ethnicity, it, it has that emphasis, which, as I describe it, as a generational component, not as a nation of, of blood cousins, but it does 
I think have more than culture and emphasis on it matters that your grandparents lived here. It matters that your great grandfather fought in that war. It matters. So culture is far too much to my mind, a snapshot in time. Oh, you have the same common culture you're in. Whereas ethnicity has that, but then it also says it matters that your ancestors sweat on this land to bring fruit of the earth from it. Okay. Is this, so then, then he has, again, it's like the, is this, a, is this really the direction we're to be pushed by the gospel? Okay. Well, I mean, that's not an argument. I, that, that's really just, again, it's, it's de young with a lot of credibility talking to his very normal crowd saying, is this really what the gospel pushed? And, and What's frustrating is at this point, he's probably read, uh, I don't know, 100 and at least 150 pages or so, where I lay out precisely the relationship between nature and grace in the Reformed tradition and how the gospel um, comes to impact that. So now, yeah, well, if, if I'm right about all the arguments I did prior to this point, then yeah, that's what the gospel pushes. I, it does, you, you've thrown the word really in there is not an argument. Are we really to pursue a social order in earth so different from that which is present in heaven? Weird. Okay, in heaven, it's weird because heaven, there's actually, it's multinational. So if we are to pursue, if, if we are to, to per, pursue that um, on earth now, are, are you saying that like we, that, the Christian politics must, in principle, seek multiculturalism, must seek multinationalism. How did these other cultures come about in the first place? How was ethnicity maintained over time to say this is a people group in heaven, and that's a people group in heaven, and that's a people group in heaven? Wouldn't it seem that actually, no, like according to Young's idea, it would everything would turn into a melting pot? Everyone comes together, but all Christians now they're all the same people from you know intermarriage and all that. So in, in fact, the end at the end of time, you wouldn't have separate nations at, as, at all. You'd have just one kind of mixed blob, I guess. Um, but it, but no, it was actually the fact that the reason why heaven has multinational presence is precisely for the reasons I offered, because it was built into the very structure of our being to seek particularity, to seek similarity, and to, in some sense, be distinguished from other people groups. That's precisely why it's there in the first place. That that's precisely why in heaven there are different nations, right? So I don't I don't really fully understand uh, the argument. And, and also, there's a difference. And he would know. I mean, he knows that there's a difference between our life on earth and the principles of this life and the principles of like a sort of heavenly life, right? We, we are earthbound beings. We, we are pre-glorified. Even if the state of grace is not a state of glory, there's a sense in which we have a right to it. Um, and we have a, a sort of um, security to receive it, but we're not glorified. It's a different state. So the state of integrity, state of sin, and state of grace, those three, there's a significant continuity. And I argue this in the book, which he doesn't really bring up. And But the state of glory is a lot different, right? There's a lot of, there, there's difference there where there's no marriage, there's no childbirth. So to say, hey, uh, the congregation of heaven in Revolution Seven has a different multi is multinational. Therefore, everything on earth should be multinational or whatever. Doesn't actually follow logically from the Reformed theology of 
the difference between um, the those first three states taken together and the state of glory. And I, I could provide dozens of, of statements as to why that's the case um, that in the reform tradition, that there's a difference between like even people who thought that the original promise, like takes Thomas Goodwin, who thought the original promise of life was actually continuation on earth, they still affirm that the state of glory is fundamentally different or is significantly different um, than um, than the original, than, than even the state of grace. So, so yeah, uh, are we really so sure that our love for people like us and our ostracism of people unlike us? I never said that we should ostracize people. Again, using language, this is called a, a question-begging epithet. That is, I mean, we think of epithets a little bit differently, but this is question-begging, saying that I want to ostracize people. I'm not saying we ought to ostracize people. Is saying no more immigration uh, or limited is that ostracizing some people? God-given inclination, not fallen ones. Yeah. Well, again, this is all kind of question begging uh, because I argue, already argued that those inclinations are in fact not sinful because they conduce to our good, which he has not refuted and he's not offered an alternative. He's just asking questions and the questions themselves are kind of loaded questions. So if there are no other problems with the book, I mean, really he hasn't actually dealt with any arguments. His defense of becoming more exclusive ethnic foes should just stop in their tracks. All are ready to follow his vision for national, re national re renewal. Now, my point here is that I think in the West has far too much of a universalistic frame that they're that people that Westerners are unable to see that their own people groups, which have been in this place. I mean, just take take, for example, uh, like England, uh, English people have lived on that island for hundreds and hundreds, hundreds, thousands of years. And yet sometimes. The, they'll talk about people who have been there for a year, for a generation or two, as the indigenous people, whereas they're not indigenous. What's going on there? It's a universalistic frame where, in a way, England is just sort of blank slate for anyone to show up, and there's no actual real British culture. There's no actual Western British culture. And whatever it is, it's purely universal that everyone can kind of take and, and become part of. So there's no actual particularity. It's utterly uh, universal, right? America is, I think, is an exaggerated, far exaggerated form of that with the idea of propositional nation, nationhood. Um, but I mean, that's a, that's a subject for America. But uh, again, another thing too is I'm not talking again like about America specifically, though I do think in America we should have, as I define ethnic, again, it's not racial, it's not physical components, it's a sort of way, a way of life, way of seeing the world, um, generational connections, but not blood cousins of a nation, and uh, and separate but equal. Again, like he's, DeYoung is like, he's importing biology into my definition of ethnicity, which I nowhere affirm in the book, right? And I even say, I say directly in the book, I said this earlier, intermarriage can lead to a sort of ethnogenesis for, for people groups. Okay. I think it would be good for like Appalachian people to say, I want to be Appalachian. You hear like, I mean, what's funny is the only thing like, like in the South, people in the South are not, are not like white people in the South are not given the opportunity or uh, are not allowed to criticize the fact that, that, um, like Hispanics and uh, and some places like where I, where I live, like Hindus 
are moving in in great numbers. They can't do that. But they can complain about all the Californians. Californians moving to Texas and Californians moving to North Carolina and Colorado. Californians this, all the white Californians. Weird thing is that a lot of those people are actually conservatives from California, first of all. But it's just revealing that those are the only people you're allowed to criticize, right? Like you want to maintain your way of life in Appalachia or in the, um, in in North Carolina, uh, or and and but you can only criticize the fellow white Cal, uh, Californians. So there's there's a lot. I mean, there's a lot to talk about here, but it's just the idea that 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 we should think more along the lines of particularity. Um, and what what is fueling this? Is it is it twentieth century fascism? No, it's me reading British conservatives like Roger Scruton. He doesn't use the word ethnicity. I don't, I don't think too much. No, that's because he was very he was uh, probably more careful than I am. Um, uh, this this is also flowing from paleoconservatism, American paleoconservatism, as well that you'll read in people like Russell Kirk and uh, and other people like Chronicles and other. So th this idea of having a Southern particularity, I mean, one of the actual criticism I've received is that I'm really just a Yankee <laughs> from the, uh, uh, and, uh, and I, I don't really understand the South and all that, or something, something to that effect, or that, that really, yeah, like the problem with Christian nationalism is this, it's going to do the same thing that, um, that the, the Northerners want to do, which is to uh, homogenize the entire, our world or our entire country. And that's actually not what I'm saying at all. Um, is that they're misunderstanding the nation state nation distinction I've already laid out. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so that's the point. Um, I don't know. There, there's probably more to say, but now the na nature of the church. So I guess that that's, it, it's a, yeah. The, uh, the, the, the nature of the church. Now this is a very, very kind of a curious section. This is like on ecclesiology. Um, it's about systematic theology. Really weird. So, uh, to his credit, Wolf clearly distinguishes between civil realm and ecclesial realm. Okay, a kind of two kingdom theology. Um, basically, Samuel Rutherford's two kingdom theology. I, I think it would, it would be essentially confessional two kingdoms um, that, uh, without using like I don't use kingdom of grace and kingdom of nature or kingdom of power. I don't really like those distinctions as much, um, but. Anyway, same thing. The, the Christian nation is not the spiritual kingdom of Christ, nor the immunitized eschaton is not found in principles of grace or the or the gospel. Uh, nevertheless, um, the civil government uh, ought to direct people to the Christian religion because an earthly kingdom is a Christian kingdom when it orders the people to the kingdom of heaven. Yeah. Uh, so the, the idea here is that the the a Christian nation is in its ultimate end directing people to the kingdom of heaven. It's not... The imminentizing of it it's not the kind of the um uh, conflation of the two kingdoms it is ordering one to the other and so that that means that your way of life and customs would do that your self-conception would do that your um uh, your laws would do that so wolf doesn't conflate the church and the world but he argues that the christian nation is a complete image of eternal life on earth so this is where it is interesting because he doesn't actually address my my claims on as he as he shows like 195 he then goes to like attack one like which is literally kind of like one paragraph i believe uh in the book and it's really something that could be removed from the book and it would still have the same substance 
this was just kind of a something a, a claim found in Johann Alsted, who was a very very important theologian. Actually, he was more than that. He was an encyclopedist. I mean, he was uh, one of the most learned men in the 17th century, um, and he made this claim that the 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 republic, like the city or the republic, is on earth is um, an image of eternal life, or it's an e e image of kind of the eternal city. Okay. So then I saw that and I cited it, which unfortunately de Young does not himself cite, um, that I cited Alstead in support. In fact, I believe it, I put it in Latin um, in the text to basically show that it's not from me. It's from Alstead, uh, which I, this happens actually often in reviews where, where people call out some position I make as if it's novel, when sometimes it's like I have like three or four people supporting that position, the footnotes of famous people. Um, and this is just another example. But the point is, oh, so what, what is it? I say that Christian nation is a complete image of eternal life um, on earth, which again is like almost a direct quote of Alstead. But even if I'm wrong about that, that doesn't therefore require me to refute or uh, to deny what I said before. So it's a curious angle of attack where he's essentially attacking like an appendage that doesn't get at the heart of the argument. But what am I doing here? So like basically I'm saying that if we think of like heavenly life is there's this, this there's Christ as king. There's a people in the place, the place is New Jerusalem. And so if you think of like the image on earth of what that would look like, it would be a, a Christian monarch or, or well, not say a monarch, it would be a Christian um, ruler, Christian government. Um, and like most places have some kind of executive. But anyway, uh, and then you have a people and you have a place. And, the, and when that whole life is oriented to the worship of God, ultimately, through the action, through the instituted church, it's not the church that's essential to that because the church is the primary um, institution through which people worship God corporately, you know, so that's essential to it. But that those people um, are kind of an analog to heaven. And I say it's more than the church as an institution. This is one, it's, it's the irony here is DeYoung wants to say, Oh, we're going to address this systematic theology. But in systematic theology, I mean, if you pull out like Turretin's Institutes of Eclectic Theology, when he talks about ecclesiology, it's like hundreds of pages. It's incredible. It's incredible in many ways. But DeYoung just keeps throwing out the word church. What do you mean by church? Do you mean the invisible church as the elect? Do you mean the instituted church, meaning the, the ministry, um, the order? Um, or do you, do you mean the people themselves as a sort of like physical manifestation of the kingdom of God? Like, what do you mean by church? The reason I deny it's an outpost of heaven, I mean the instituted church. I mean, but it is the case that the people of God, as if you mean those as the church in an outward sense, which is fundamentally what the church is. So we don't want to be Roman Catholic. Roman Catholics believe that the, institu the institution makes the people. Protestants believe that the people make the institution. I mean, they, they constitute, they instantiate the institution, right? They, they select their ministers, that kind of stuff. Okay. The people themselves, but the people, as, as I think in this section, I might cite like uh, Davenport, but the same people can be under two different administrations, the civil and the ecclesiastical. They can be under civil rule and they can be under uh, ecclesial, um, the ecclesial rule. And so you that's... Uh, so that you just have the, the the same people. So you can say the church in a way submits to civil rulers if you have 
if you have like a New England arrangement, right, where you have the um, like civil life is p- people are kind of united in their theology for the most part, right? So you can have, you can, you can, and, and it wouldn't be wise to say that just because it bring confusion, but you could say it if understood church in a, if you kind of identify what you mean by church, that is a church itself actually ident- uh, um, in, a, in a locality submits a civil rule concerning things that are civil in nature, not spiritual. So in that sense, the same people who are under civil rule and under ecclesial administration are the principal image of heavenly life. Yes, I affirm that. Um, but even if I'm wrong about that, it doesn't strike at my original claim. Okay. It doesn't strike at my original claim. It really. So let's just leave it at that. I'll keep going on. He does some like biblical, uh, biblical theology. Um, It's only at the end of the age we can expect heaven to come down to earth. In the time being, the analog of heaven resides in the church. I mean, I say so many times. In fact, people have made fun of me for saying that it's not imminentizing the eschaton uh, like three times in the book. It's, I never say. And an analog is, basically analog is just like another another way to say image. Like if you look back at that text in the book, I just mean image like we are the image of god that doesn't mean we are gods the image of god so in in a sense we are and then analogical thinking so um i I don't really know why he kind of confronts my my view of matthew henry or my matthew henry comment i don't know i didn't look that up maybe i'm wrong with that but it doesn't really matter i don't think um so he does yeah he does some like biblical theology but again like the church what do you mean by church you know e- even like the confessions dis- describe or delineate different ways you can understand church so i, I mean i already went through it but call the church an incomplete image of of heavenly life well the the church in a certain sense is already in heavenly life right because the elect of god as in this life you have a sort of foretaste but like you can you can say that like the church as a symbol is a sort of heavenly assembly because these are the people bound for heaven and in a sense they have a title to heaven and in a sense have a foretaste of heavenly life so you can you can say that's true but i'm talking about the earthly image that would manifest as an image on earth is is complete when you have a uh, arrangement with a earthly king over people who are earthly or outward outwardly um that would be an earthly image of heavenly life whereas the church considered in its spiritual capacity it's not an image at all of heavenly life right it is in, in a way heavenly life in its foretaste it's not even an image it's a sort of degree, not, not it's 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 more like a degree. I'm kind of thinking out loud here, but it's more of a degree of heavenly life than it is an analog. So, but again, I so I disagree with him on that. But I, I don't. That's that's literally one paragraph. Like he spends several paragraphs going after one paragraph in the book, which is perfectly fine. But I don't want people to get the impression that he's attacking some central idea uh, of the book. So uh, he's not. 
Jesus didn't promise to build any institution other than the church. Okay, I'm not really sure. Um, I, I'm not post-millennialist, so I, I'm not claiming that like that Jesus did promise that there would be Christian civil government. So I, I don't know what that's attacking. Now, this part bothers me. The impression one gets from the case for Christian nationalism is that the, is the church plays merely a supportive spiritual role as part of a larger project that involves the civil realm, ordering people to com their complete good. Wolf's vision is nation-centric rather than church-centric. Well, it's a book on Christian nationalism. It's a book on, it's a book of political theory. It's not a book of Christian theology. It's a book of Christian political theory that's dealing with politics. If I was going to approach it from a theology or, a, I mean, I don't know if I was, I'm doing, I don't know, I'm doing politics. I don't know what else to say. Uh, the church has a supportive spiritual role in politics. Yeah, that's ministers should not be civil rulers, right? I mean, maybe you say they can, but they can't be civil rulers as ministers. That would be a violation, right? Even in our, our founding, fine, you had Witherspoon. Almost all these other guys were just statesmen or lawyers. They were just non-ordained people. The church absolutely should have only a supportive role when it comes to civil affairs. I mean, are, are you saying that uh, we should like this movement should have an office in every church and and we should all meet with the minister and uh, it, everything proceeds from the instituted church? That's how pol true Christian politics. Now, I don't think he would affirm this. I'm just very confused as what else he wants the church as an institution. Now, again, if we church, we mean the people of God, then yes, politics arises from the church in that sense. But if we mean the institution. Yes, it is only it is only supportive. We are not Roman Catholics. The the our minister cannot order a civil ruler to do something, and the civil ruler goes, "Yes, sir, uh, I'm a delegate of your of your authority." Um, is it nation citric? Actually, you know the uh, the funny thing is, I several times I state, and in terms of like the 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 most important thing a, a nation can do is orient people to the worship the true worship of god which is in the church the church as institution in a sense the civil realm I mean, this is not roman catholic it might sound like it in a sense the civil realm ought to submit to the church as an end of as a as the principal end of um of the civil realm Me meaning that the highest good is eternal life the nation ought to then order in some in some way um, people to that highest good. The highest good is found through the, principally through the administration of the church. Therefore, the nation ought to orient people to the church. So actually, it's very church centric. I just don't think that ministers should be telling should be telling civil rulers what to do. I don't think uh, ministers should stand on the pulpit and constantly preach about politics every day. So yeah, it's actually very church centric. It's just I don't think a guy with an MDiv is a statesman. Right. <laughs> I just state bluntly. Um, but for example, if, if we're to experience a great renewal, we must hope and pray for God like magistrate, whom the people look up to as father, protector of the country, a man of dignity and greatness of soul, who lead the people to liberty, virtue, and godliness to greatness. Yeah, like George Washington. Um, I, I know that there's questions about his spiritual life, but the guy did attend church regularly. He did actually support, contrary to Madison, he supported um, uh, a role of government and religion. 
There isn't much about uh, prayer in the book. Okay, yeah, that's, uh, I mean, you read Althusius Politica, he doesn't talk about prayer very much either. It's a work of politics. Politics is about external action. And it's, and it presumably that action is something that you can actually do given your, given your capacity, right? So, I mean, th there is a sense in, we, in which action, proper action does rely upon grace. But if you wake up in the morning and you're like, eh, I don't feel like going to church. There's God's not, I, God has not given me the grace this morning to go to church. Um, what do you do? No, you get your butt out of bed and go to church. Even if you don't feel like you have the grace to do it. Um, so it's politics. It's a matter of action. It's a political book. I'm not saying like safe. So let's go on. Raise up a Christian prince, a leader who would suppress the enemies of God and elevate his people, recover worshiping people, restore masculine prominence in the land and a spirit of dominion, affirm and conserve his people in place, not permitting their dissolution or capture, and inspire love of one's Christian country. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, again, is it, he's just quoting it. Is that, is it bad? I mean, I, I just wonder if, if the young is rely upon his credibility with his, his crowd or his, his people, you're not attacking that, but that seems to be the rhetoric is relying upon the young saying, this is kind of scary. Wolf concludes the chapter by urging the people to pray that God would bring about through a gracious prince, a great renewal. Okay, good. I did say prayer. <laughs> I also say that at the very end of the book, I think the last uh, line says, um, the last line speaks about prey as well. A measured theocratic Caesarism, a world shaker of our time. Yeah, I, I, I understand this could be um, this could be very controversial. I think that in our time, what we do need is we need someone who is kind of a larger than life figure. Uh, I don't think Trump is that man. I think he might have paved the way for a better person to do uh, to do that. I absolutely think we should have that um, that. But again, let's not do the undistributed middle fallacy where I'm talking about Hitler or Mussolini. I'm talking about someone with someone like literally, I mean, was not, I, you know, I mean, just to take like George Washington. I keep bringing him up. I'm sorry. Decades after he died, people still in their living room had a bust of George Washington on their mantle in their living room. He's the father of the country. He did a lot for the country. But it was his own personal presence. He, he wasn't like some great like political thinker. He didn't speak a lot during the federal convention debates, but he presided over it for the legitimacy given his presence, given his, his fame. Right? Um, people will be offended. I say he was a form of Caesar, but he in effect, he was a type of Caesar and then he held the country together. In his in his farewell address. Um, when he was leaving the presidency, he essentially, I've said this before, like he essentially said, I'm out of here. <laughs> I'm retiring. You guys have a lot in common. I'm done. I'm going to retire. And you guys have to keep this. You have to hold this together. He was retiring, saying I'm out. But he knew that he was, his pres, his his name held the country together in, ter in, in very difficult times. And he remains often called the father of the country uh, for that fact. All right. So, okay, I'm, 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 I'm already an hour and 15 minutes here. Pastors should be left more like chaplains and people of God told me without pastor. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, and, and I, yeah, I've, I've already just explained this. 
I think if you're going to do politics at the civil realm, you don't need ministers as ministers leading it. That's not their principal role. I mean, talk about like, like wolves not peeling the Bible. Like, where in the Bible does it say ministers should be political rulers or political leaders or social movement leaders? Yeah, like chaplains. What does a chaplain do? A chaplain is a special staff who has a direct channel to commanders in military units, battalions, brigades, divisions, corps, army, all the way top. What does a chaplain do? He advises on things uh, spiritual and ethical to the commander, but he's not in the chain of command. I mean, that's what a minister would do. I, I just don't understand the problem here. Increases the importance of the nation, the expense of the importance of the church is absolutely not part of what I say in the book. I don't emphasize the nation as opposed to the church. I, in fact, say that the church, the nation ought to submit to the church as the as being since the church is the administer of the highest good is a price too high to pay. Another thing too, is he doesn't actually make that argument is a price too high to pay. Well, why? What's the argument? I mean, there's a lot of words. Like I keep saying that, like there's a lot of words in this. This is a long review, but he doesn't actually make any arguments. He just says it's too high a price to pay. And I don't think he intends this, but rhetorically it just means it's it's too high a price to pay, sign Kevin DeYoung. That's just what I think is going on here rhetorically, at least in effect. Again, I'm not trying to say he's doing that intentionally. I don't think he is. But I think most people who read this is just going to say, you know, signed Kevin DeYoung. Protestant political thought. All right. I think I can move a little faster through this section. Wolf's Retrieval Project is correct. Okay. I appreciate this point, except the fact that the things he mentioned in this section are not things that I, I retrieve. It, I mean, I, I do cite a lot of guys for the things he mentions here, which is like uh, use of use of like civil power with regard to heretics in the church and other things like that. Um, but it makes it seem as if I'm assuming these guys, these arguments when I'm actually arguing for these arguments. So the argument, well, and let me say why this is important because he'll go on through here uh, his argument is basically that, well, things changed after the 17th century, and therefore you can't just assume stuff about church-state relations from 16th, 17th centuries, and then go from there because things changed after that. Okay, uh, that, and that's actually, I think that, wait, I think that's his second point. Yeah, that's his second point. The problem with this is that I didn't retrieve those arguments and then use them as my arguments. What I retrieved was more of a philosophical anthropology. It was how was man created? What's the nature of the fall? What's the nature of grace? And that's in chapters one and two. But when it comes to the power of the civil government to, to do things with regard to religion, I make my own arguments entirely. In fact, uh, in chapter four, I believe it is, I give eight separate independent arguments in favor of the proposition that civil government can promote and support and protect true religion. Eight separate arguments. One of them does appeal to antiquity tradition. One does, but it's not just a bare appeal. It's with principles. The others are all separate independent arguments that I argue, uh, affirm, would require you, if you agree with the premises and the reasoning, to affirm the conclusion. So the fact that DeYoung then mentions a bunch of guys who would disagree with that conclusion, who that is irrelevant. I, I mean, I know, of course I know people 
later disagreed with that conclusion, but that doesn't refute the conclusion. I don't assume, I don't assume these things. I don't, I, I argue for them. So it's a really kind of a, a strange response. And then he goes on like Poofendorf. I don't know why. I always, I remember reading this originally. Why is he talking about Poofendorf? Um, I don't know. Yeah, Locke, I got Locke. You know what's cool about Locke, though, is Locke did say that we shouldn't tolerate atheists. People tend to forget that. In his letter concerning toleration, he directly says uh, we should not tolerate those who deny the being of a god. That is atheist. So I, I've said that before, and people lose their minds, uh, even though like the father of liberalism, Locke himself, doesn't want, doesn't think atheists should be tolerated. Again, Pufendorf and Locke, I think this is largely uh, irrelevant. It would only be relevant if we were to bring those arguments to bear against my own. Um, De Young does not mention any of my arguments. So, very unfortunate. He'd be hard-pressed to find a country where Orthodox Protestants have more power. I, I, I don't, yeah, that's all I don't know what's going on here. Um, oh, I, I think, yeah, so I, I don't know if it's here, but I'll just state it here. Um, Unfortunately, the young misunderstands my the difference between in the in the book between permissibility and prudence, especially in the American context. Because he keeps focusing on America here. I do think it's permissible and prudence to apply capital punishment to the worst offenders of heresy, not because simply because they state false belief, but because they're persistent. They're they're nutsoid. And they keep badgering, blah, blah, blah. I mean, that's okay in principle. Um, that doesn't mean it's appropriate in every in every case or by every or every people. It just means it's permissible. I mean, according to the, tr the traditional Christian view of slavery, slavery is permissible, morally permissible. Now, does that mean because it's morally permissible? Let's say I were to make a case for that. Does that mean that Wolf is calling for the reintroduction of slavery in the United States? Or does that mean that Wolf thinks that it's in, it's embedded in the American, you know, that we should do this? This is what we should. No, that's not at all what I'm saying. And that doesn't, it doesn't follow from permissibility um, that I should do it. It's permissible for me to um, right now spend a bunch of money to go to, to, to just fly all the way to China and spend there two months and abandon my family. It would be permissible in itself, but it would be wrong because it would you know, it's a dumb example. But I mean, permissibility is different than prudence or suitability. I don't know. I can just beat that up. I don't know how many times I have to say that. Um, but uh, I think DeYoung missed that here. I'm not calling for rounding up a bunch of heretics. Um, so. Uh, so here he he goes after this is kind of I guess getting near the end he goes after uh, my handling the American founding. Um, he, I think that yeah this is where there's that confusion like in the middle there he says argues for theocratic Caesarism for national church establishment I argue that it's permissible for Christian principles punish false teachers to regulate external acts of religion yes I, um, I argue that it's permissible that includes all those things yes I argue that's permissible. This isn't what the American founding was about. Now, I don't know how he can read that chapter and not understand the point. The point was that th these two era th that there is consistency between my argument and the American founding in the sense that 
Protestants developed their thinking by experience. They realized that heretics are bad, but if you use civil power against them, it's worse or, or it's counterproductive. That was the, the argument was not that the abandoned principles, but that the American founding uh, and, and uh, is a sort of culmination of Protestant experience with regard to religious liberty. And um, so, I don't know if you hear my dog. My dog is losing his mind out there for some reason, probably from the, uh, some delivery truck. Um, so th that's the th that's the point, and he just kind of missed it. I I, uh, I, I don't I, I don't know why that isn't like un that isn't clear because like I literally have a, the tenth chapter. That's what it's about. That's the argument, and I think it he kind of gets it, but then he says. Um, our time calls for a man who can wield formal civil power to great effect and shape the public imagination by means of charisma, gravitas, and personality, which is sort of demagogic instinct or conscious system was meant to oppose. Um, no, that is not at all the point. Again, I'd say George Washington had the sort of charisma, certainly the gravitas and personality to wield tremendous power um, to great effect. Now that doesn't mean that it's unlimited absolute power that's un, that's that has no constraints through a constitutional system. It just means that you should have great leaders with great. I mean, do all is he saying that we want all our our political leaders to be like a, a policy wonk like Paul Ryan, or do we want someone who has who's more than just a policy guru, you know, who wears like a. Uh, uh, I don't know, shows up in suits that are all that needs to be need to be tailored, or are we going to have someone who can do both? And I so yeah, I think we need someone who can wield formal civil power. Formal civil power meaning a legitimate civil power. That doesn't mean I'm saying go extra constitutional or destroy the constitution. We have had great leaders in this country who use civil power in accordance with the constitution have and to great effect and have had and they've done it by capturing the public imagination. I mean, I don't like Obama at all, but Obama had a certain charisma, a certain gravitas, a certain personality, and he captured the public imagination to the point where after he won in, in um, uh, when was it, 2000, 2008, conservatives were crying because they elected a black man. Right? I remember this like on, they're like, oh, I'm just so proud of our country for, even though they despise the guy, they recognize that that he had captured the public imagination. Now that went bad, I think. Maybe not the best example, um, but it just shows the sort of person I'm talking about, where you can you can maintain, you can have a person that uh, is within generally the limits of the Constitution and uh, can be um, can can uh, capture in public imagination. This mean a demagogic instinct. Again, I think there's a little bit of that undistributed middle going on there. One is led to believe the political philosophy of the founding era was no different than what Protestants had believed 100 or 200 years ago. For example, Wolf concludes that John Witherspoon's view on the role of government religion is no different than Cotton Mather's. This is simply not true. Well, that is, a, that is actually a very limited claim that I made. And what I was saying is I was specifically talking about um, religious liberty. He goes on to talk about how Mather rejected moral philosophy. And I know exactly what he's talking about. Uh, I've read that. I've commented on it. I know what Witherspoon is talking about. I know exactly where he got that. 
where where um, that's from the very first lecture in his more his lectures on moral, on moral philosophy that Withers, Witherspoon reacts to to Mather in that regard. But it's com it's completely irrelevant to my argument. What I was saying is that Mather, who uh, gave an ordination sermon for a Baptist of all places in 1717, this is only a few decades earlier, his own father, Increase Mather, was trying to suppress Baptists. In the audience in 1717, when Cotton made that sermon, Increase was there. When the sermon was published, Increase Mather wrote the preface uh, to it, and, and Cotton, of course, was the author of the, of the sermon. And in it, he he said that in the past, we didn't need to do this. We, we persecuted the Baptists. It was unnecessary. It actually makes things worse. Um, and, uh, we, we can, that we can suppress like violations of natural religion, like blasphemy and, and some of these things, like atheism, um, this Cotton Mather again. And that's basically what Witherspoon said. Witherspoon, his argument was on religious liberty in his lectures on moral philosophy. And I forget which lecture it was. He basically says the same thing. It's like, yeah, I mean, if people are subversive, maybe it's okay to, to use civil power, but it's almost always counterproductive and therefore it shouldn't happen. It shouldn't, you shouldn't do it. That's, I think, what Mather argued. And so I think in, in my limited claim, I didn't broaden. I'd say like the, the entire political philosophy is the same. Um, I mean, I, I kind of, it's complicated, but I didn't, it's not, but citing like the, that, um, the Witherspoon um, Mather connection is really doesn't get at the heart of what my argument was. Yeah, Witherspoon shaped by Pufendorf and Hutchison. Yeah, I, I get that. Okay. But I mean, I'm talking about the actual understanding, stated understanding of religious liberty. And then he talks about the American revision, which again is itself actually controversial, what it actually means. Does it mean that um, a country cannot seek, cannot maintain, seek to maintain its Protestant dominance? I don't know. I, I don't think this is entirely relevant uh, to, so I'm just going to kind of skip it. Perhaps, perhaps it is more than he thinks, but or perhaps it is it is more than I think relevant. But um, yeah, I, I so on the thing. This is this can, can get gets into scholarship on the view of Madison and then the the, the um, Hanover Presbytery, and I know all about that. Um, but I would just say again that like Madison, like we 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 tend to think like Madison and Jefferson are like the big names of religious liberty. And they are if you only read 20th century jurisprudence. But before that, they're rarely cited. Like Jefferson wasn't even there when the First Amendment was debated and ratified. Madison was part of it, but so was Roger Sherman. So were other people who were pro kind of like soft establishment in the states. Um, George Washington rejected Madison's view. Um, John Adams rejected it. George Mason rejected it. Of course, Patrick Henry rejected it. And Madison even goes beyond Locke. So, I mean, Madison had a fairly extreme position on religious liberty. In a way, he won out in the end, um, into the latter part of the 19th century. But if we're just talking about the founding era, which is what I was talking about, it's absolutely the case that Madison had a more extreme view. And that's just, Mark Hall says that. Mark Hall, the great scholar, um, right on this stuff, says essentially the same thing. So, um, I don't know why why that's that's being brought up. Maybe he's trying to question like my Presbyterianism in that sense. But uh, yeah, so let's keep going. These dissenters knew that a pan-Protestant establishment had never worked. 
Um, at that time, I'm, I'm not even, I, that's actually kind of weird because the, after like in the 17th century, that's basically what the colonies were. I mean, of course it is, it's more complicated than that, but generally speaking, that's kind of what the colonies already were. There were establishments, um, but most of them kind of had an extension of religious liberty. Um, I mean, you can pull out examples of persecutions here and there, like in Virginia and, and like Connecticut against Presbyterians. Um, but, um, but, but, but it's weird. I, I'm, it's actually not, it, it's, you'd have to demonstrate to me that these, that these people would be opposed to want an utterly secularist. I'm not talking about a secular as in government separate from religion, but a, a secularist conception of its, uh, the nation itself. Um, you'd have to demonstrate that it'd be really hard to believe that everyone had a sort of Tom Paine view that, that, uh, that who had the most extreme view where they're just secularist in principle from top to bottom. All right. Um, yeah, I don't want to talk about the history of Presbyterian. I'm not really sure how that's relevant. So the last thing is he didn't like my epilogue, which uh, it's, I guess, understandable. He has a very kind of academic book, and all of a sudden I'm talking about how you should work out gynocracy, the, the gay, the uh, global American empire. I understand why he wouldn't like that. This book, was uh, the I did say in the very beginning that I was going to speak freely. I don't know why he was so uh, upset by so many things here. He listed something. It didn't actually oppose them. Um, he doesn't like the idea of a gynocracy. Uh, it's, it's, it's weird. I'm sure he's experienced it as, as a pastor. I'm sure he's seen the way that people react to criticism of, uh, of women. Um, and just in the academic world, he probably knows John Wilsey who critiqued Jesus and John Wayne. And I thought very gently and was absolutely trashed up and up across the world. I'm sure he saw that. And you're saying that's, I mean, I like, I like John Wills. And it was, a, I, I actually commented initially and thought the review was weak, <laughs> but he was trashed just because he gave a critical review of Jesus and John Wayne. Um, and you're telling me there's no gynocracy out there. Okay. Well, whatever. He didn't like it. Women in credentialism. You're saying that's not the case. Our ruling class. Okay. You don't like that. Resist modern life. Don't like that. Choosing a career, advice on how on, on choosing a career uh, for young people. Um, didn't like that. Embarrassment of low testosterone. Like, are you not concerned by that? That uh, the, that there's low testosterone within probably your congregation. As I understand, there was a study that showed that ministers have low testosterone. I'm not saying you do. I'm just saying that there's there could be a problem there. Isn't it a problem that's, that's plummeting? That doesn't bother people. Usually health problems arise. Like if you want to be healthy for men, generally speaking, the, when your testosterone levels go down, it's actually bad for you. So yeah, what are you eating? Are you lifting weights? Are you sitting around a lot? Are you getting fat? Um, I, I, I don't understand. I understand it'd be, it'd be kind of odd maybe to have it in this book. It, But does he is he aware of what particularly younger men are seen in in their world that it's it's funny to be fat it's funny to be sit around and be lazy 
it's funny that you're weak or it's good that you're weak. You dress like a slob. I mean, yeah, the PCA General Assembly, I mentioned that. You look at the pictures of that. They're at this very serious meeting just deciding theological matters. And they're wearing wrinkled golf shirts and shorts and they're fat. I think that's a problem. I think that's a problem. I mean, I, I understand like, hey, you're overweight. I, I don't, crit I mean, there's a lot of people overweight who are trying to lose weight. I know it's hard. Um, so my main criticism was not so much like that they're overweight, but that they don't dress appropriately for the occasion. And that just signals to, to men, like, I, I don't know. That, that's why you don't like that in there. I think you're out of touch um, with your younger congregants. And to to be offended that something as, as obvious as masculine mental, uh, health for men, something that relates to their mental health, I think that's a kind of a problem here. That it's concerning, that it's extra trouble, troubling that I wrote these things down. That maybe uh, canola oil, which is produced in horrible processes, is bad for you. That I think we should have a good external appearance. It's baffling. The troopative harangues and baffling. I don't understand. I, I don't get it. Is this like a generational thing? I, I don't understand why this is a problem. I've heard many, I've heard back from many men that they like this this epilogue that they would some people i've said said read the intro and then go to the epilogue which is <laughs> interesting why wouldn't you want some guy to say lift weights eat right lose the dad bod don't have to be bodybuilders you should be men of power and endurance all very concerning the fact the fact that he wrote it down is this the civilizational answer we're looking for Living off the grid, okay, I didn't say that. Complaining about women, I didn't complain about women. I'm analyzing a certain state of affairs in society that most people recognize if they're honest about it. Complaining about the regime. You mean the regime that mutilates kids, the regime that that promotes homosexual sexuality to our kids, the regime that goes to war in foreign countries and kills tens or hundreds of thousands of people. That regime, yeah. Complaining about how hard it is to be a white male. I just saw a, a report that showed that of CEO of, of hirings in major corporations, only 6% were white males. And I think they're just white people, and probably among white people, if fewer white males. How hard is it to be a, a white male? This is That's a sort of rhetoric you hear from someone on, on the woke side. If you apply to an Ivy League school and you've busted your ass for four years in high school, and you got a 1600 in the SAT, and you get don't even get a look because someone else got an 1100 on the SAT, but their skin color is different. No, don't think about it. It's concerning that you'd write that down. Extra troubling. The fact that people, particularly white males or white people, are dying from fentanyl overdoses. The fact that they have a higher suicide rate than any other people within the country. The fact that they are ridiculed every single day on the media, that book after book comes out every day attacking the white male. So hard to be a white male. Yeah. Warning about the globalists. Oh, the, the globalists. Let's see, the globalists who 
have allowed millions of people in the last a year, I guess, to cross our border with no stopping it. The globalists who want to send us off to war to make the world safe for democracy. Warning about the globalists. Calling out the dangers of vegetable oil. Wow, like literally one line. Um, most likely vegetable oil is horrible for you. Yeah, most likely, or seed oil. Most likely seed oil is horrible for you. Kind of like high fructose corn syrup is bad for you. Chastising Presbyterians with dad bods. Yeah, I think ministers should lose weight. I think they should lose weight. You know, so uh, it's, and if you lose weight, you can you can definitely carry it better than sitting awkwardly on a chair in a conference, your belly spilling over. I mean, I'm sorry. You're like, you guys are going to be on camera. I, I don't know what else to say. I at least put a shirt on. You know, I was outside earlier, but I put a shirt on. Um, okay. Besides trafficking, sweeping as soon as claims about, okay, well, I told you I was going to speak freely in the epilogue. So yeah, they're kind of sweeping. I mean, come on, G give me, give me a break. I mean, I, I wrote, I wrote like at this point for over 430 something pages where I try to substantiate everything. Give me like 20 pages to just bloviate a little bit, please. Like I've been doing it <laughs> during this review. Um, just let me bloviate uh, just a little bit. Um, yeah, sorry. Um, left playbook, woke from... I. You know, like people now have kind of attached this thing like it's a woke, like right wing woke. And, and this is, it's kind of unfortunate because I'm a paleo conservative. I read older, I read like Russell Kirk. I read Russ, uh, Roger Scruton. I read the, um, people like that, you know, Pat Buchanan, Pat Buchanan, uh, like just the, the conserve, like the paleo conservative crowd that likes that, that isn't kind of like that, that doesn't think that everything the left does is absolutely wrong in principle. You know, there is like a third way tradition. I'm not, I'm not hearing me saying that, right? Be between like neocon and like the center left, the paleocons have always been a little bit different where they're not afraid to think that the binaries presented between these two sides force you to take one side or the other. I mean, isn't that a good Christian virtue? I'm a woke. I don't know if this like this idea of I'm, I'm woke. I'm just simply taking from this different tradition and applying it to using, you know, Christian theology. So I, I, I don't think like a right wing version. I, yeah. I think what's happening is like, so De Young is known for critiquing the left. Like he critiqued that, that reparations book. And, uh, and now he's critiquing the right. And again, like this makes sense because De Young is like the intellectual embodiment of the norm of the PCA. And so to call that woke and to call me woke puts him kind of in the non-woke uh, center. Very kind of convenient using this kind of woke language. When really I'm just tapping to a different tradition uh, or, or not even different. I'm just, I'm just not a, I'm just not basically a modern conservative, I guess. Um, all right. So we're getting near the end. If you're still with me, who, uh, um, if you're not, I guess you're not hearing this. 
They're grasping for some alternative, but a strategy of national renewal is molded faster than the faith of freedom. We should love our neighbors and share our faith, repress home. See, this is like uh, the strategy for uh, Kevin DeYoung. It's basically neutral world. Like he said earlier that he, he likes Ren's framework of the um, positive, neutral, um, negative. But DeYoung is just the embodiment of a sort of neutral worlder. Um, he doesn't like that I'm going to speak of gynocracy or the regime or globalists, like all that scary stuff. Let's just think like we did be before, like in the 1990s, that social, I'm, well, you know, socialism is a problem or the left is a problem and there's goofy people to the right. And just let's just kind of kind of go along what we all, all already sort of done. Virtues of prudence, just like it's the same stuff. Building bridges, building walls, it's all just stuff you can tweet out. It doesn't actually have any sort of theory behind it. There's no clear political theology behind any of this. I know this is just a review. He's not giving his actual political theology. He'd probably say that Van Drunen is like his two kingdoms guy. That's how we should go about it. Which, of course, Van Drunen is a neutral world theologian. Um, incredibly historically conditioned theology. Just It just happens that the post-war consensus is, is a perfect reflection of a historic reform theology. Um, getting sarcastic now. Um, it, it, it's approaching two hours. Getting tired here. I love my nation. I wanted to become more Christian, mostly by regeneration, but also by the good it comes from cultural Christianity. Okay, this will be the last thing I say um, because uh, the rest of it's just kind of whatever. But uh, cultural cultural Christianity. Um, it's weird that he like he said uh, he said earlier kind of it didn't show it, but he, he liked my my um, piece on my my uh, chapter on cultural Christianity and cultural Christianity. I don't think people realize like I talk about power and force in there. Like there is a sort of social force in cultural Christianity. Culture is something where you're brought into it, where you feel, in a sense, the obligation of your community to do something and to not do it feels awkward. It's a sort of, it's not compulsion in the ordinary sense, but it is the sense that you're part of other people and you ought to do something. Just like, like racism, you ought to not be racist is severely felt deep to the most deepest psychological parts of your, of your mind. That's a very much of a social conditioning. Cultural Christianity is very much like that. And, but I don't think the young is willing to think of power in that way or to understand what it takes to bring cultural Christianity about. Like you can watch a Mayberry show and say, I like that kind of cultural Christianity, maybe a little more gospel, whatever. Um, not realizing that that kind of world, even if it could exist, requires a a sort of conformity and power that is very implicit that leads people to do different things to, to make so that people feel like want, that this is right or this is wrong and they ought to do it and they kind of flow into that. that requires power. And probably a lot of um, things in the past, like this doesn't just come about like, oh, well, let's all decide to be cultural Christianity now. Let's, let's do this. That's not how it works. It, it happens because You've had power that people have exerted uh, civil power, the institutional power. They've put guardrails. I mean, um, it's a sort of place like, do you think in Mayberry, if some guy walked out and said, I'm an atheist, that anyone would want to treat them fairly? I mean, one of the things about that show is it makes a certain sense, a certain ideal, but like the serious rejection of someone of like, let's say an atheist doesn't pop up in the show because that would that would 
it wouldn't be humorous anymore and maybe not even attractive anymore. But that's what these things are. That's what that's what it would require. It would require you to say, I know you're nice, but uh, or whatever, but you're an atheist and you're not allowed or then this and that. You're not going to have institutional power. No, you can't say this or that. It's going to require power. It's going to re require that sort of stink eye towards things you don't like. Um, and people are actually very willing to exert some power. I'm sure Kevin DeYoung is. Everyone. If I were to say something racist right now, it would be screenshot or it would be quoted. It would be through all, all of social media. All the Christians, all the people who want to be kind and nice and don't uh, don't uh, don't be idolatrous towards power, blah, 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 blah. They would bring the hammer down upon me like you wouldn't believe. And I've experienced this several other times. My friends have experienced it. So you are all, I don't care who you are, you're willing to use power. Okay, that's an aside. Ultra Christianity requires the kind of power that you exert against racists. Racist right? Psychological conditioning, deep social costs or significant social costs, public calling out. Are you willing to do that to make a Christian culture? My guess is most people are not, even if they want like the idea of cultural Christianity. You're very willing to do it against racists, um, but to secure a Christian peoplehood, you're not. And part of the book, part, part of the point of the book was me precisely saying, you have to have the will for this kind of stuff. You have to be willing to do these things. I don't think most of you are. As much as you want to live in Mayberry, you don't have the stomach to do what it takes to actually maintain that. It's not conservative. Yeah, I mean, it's not conservative in the sense that I think modern conservatism is completely worthless. Yeah, I, I agree with that. What are we trying to conserve, um, right? I mean... I don't know what she said. Matthew Rose, yeah, okay. The, the far right is bad. Biblical instincts are better than nationalist ones. Okay, well, in the context of this, that's uh, question begging. Because he actually didn't demonstrate what is what a biblical instinct is. He didn't oppose any of my arguments for what. And he says, fails the biblical smell test. That's the standard. Again, DeYoung is, is Kevin DeYoung. He's got a credibility within the normal crowd. And so he can say that a guy with that sort of clout can say it violates a smell test. I like Kevin DeYoung, therefore Wolf's book is bad. But he'll do that without, again, ever saying, without demonstrating my actual arguments are false. So really that, that, uh, that, the, that sentence, the ethos of the Christian nationalism project fails the biblical smell test. That is the substance. That is the most important line in the entire, his entire review. Um, the person who says yes to every rant, the person who feels drawn to the vision of ethnic separation, right? the person who is just binding his time till the Christian prince arrives and the revolution is ready to start. No. Um, the vision of ethnic separation, you have to understand what I mean by ethnicity again. He actually seems to conflate it with race, so it kind of it messes up his entire review. We aren't the first Christians to live in trying times, blah, blah, blah. The cultural upheaval we're living through will be a means of providential grace if it leads us to think more carefully about civil society. All right, so this is set up. So this is the last line. So let us help have a great renewal. Let us also remember that the renewal we need most in our world, in our land, is the restoration of true doctrine, the reformation of our lives, and the revival of that divine and supernatural light 
which shines in our hearts to show us the glory of God in the face of Christ. So it's, you know, it's in the end, it's like a sort of false choice, right? That that's a uh, pray for a great renewal, but it has to happen through doctrine and reformation of our lives. It can't happen to, it shouldn't be within the scope of authority when you have civil authority or social authority. Um, you can't actually, it, it's gotta, it's gotta start from, it's essentially revivalism. This is very popular among people. It, I think it's just a perfect way to escape politics. Politics is hard. Maintaining social order is hard. It's easy for Christians to say, well, it's hard. We don't want to go through the wrong means. We want a great renewal, a great revival, but we just have to just preach the gospel in, in the church. So that means, so you don't actually have to do the difficulties of politics. You don't have to offend people. You don't have to exclude people. You just have to wait upon the work of the spirit through the, through the church. And then politics will become a lot easier. Why? Because now we're all Christians. We're all Christians now, and we can make all this politics just a lot easier. That's foolish. God has ordained powers of government. And I think there's a certain or, or ordination of like, um, um, like social power as well. Right. So, um, to, you know, that's a different discussion, but we have the, you have these scopes of authorities and you order your lives appropriately through those authorities, just like family life. We do that in family life. Are we going to wait for the regeneration of our 10 year old who seems to be not a sincere Christian? Or are we going to continue to order the household with the God ordained power we have as, as family power, power in the family to order that child to Christ in some way with our culture? Or are we just going to say, oh, you don't want to go to church, 12 year old? Well, you're, you can stay home, I guess. Or are you going to say, no, you're going to church with us? You're using power. You're using power. Spiritual regeneration has not happened yet. You're using power. Is that an abuse of power? Why can't society do that? Why can't civil authorities in some way, not necessarily that way of compelling church attendance, but why can't they have some role in that? So it's just not, uh, um, it's not clear exactly. Well, I'll, I'll just end this. We're almost at two hours. Again, I, th I don't think there are very many arguments in this review. It's a long review, but there are a few arguments. There's a lot of questions. Um, there's a lot of questions that, are, that would be kind of rhetorical questions. Sometimes they're loaded questions with premises that I don't affirm. Uh, some of the conclusions rely on premises I don't affirm. Sometimes they're misunderstanding of what I affirm. Uh, and in this sense, I don't think this is a good review. I think John Wilsey's review is very critical but good. I think there's one from the Kirk Center that's actually very good. Um, so I'm not saying there aren't good reviews. I think Glenn, Glenn Moot's uh, review is very good. This is just not a good review. It's full of inaccuracies, um, misreadings, question begging, um, not, not only in conclusions, but also just in some of the, the use in the words. It's... And again, I think overall, DeYoung does. I, I think in, like the review of his reparate of the reparations book by I forget those Duke Quan or whatever, that actually had like substance to it. But this one is this one is like again, it's like it. This review is the book doesn't pass the smell test. Signed, Kevin DeYoung. I'm not saying that's like what he did intentionally. I actually don't believe that's what he did. I think he genuinely thought maybe this was a good review. Like he was treating good faith review. 
but I can't help but think that like after reading it, that this book, does this review doesn't actually handle my book in any serious way. And the, and the only way this could be persuasive is if people say, Kevin Young didn't like this book and he says some things about it, they're negative. And so it's, it's bad. Um, I don't know if me pointing that out to anyone will actually help my case in certain in terms of rhetoric. I think it's true. Um, and uh, I, I think throughout this two hour response, I have, I think demonstrated that uh, the problems in this review, uh, nevertheless. So I just, I do appreciate that he would review it. Of course, it's kind of an honor to have, have uh, someone of his name and, credibility respond to my book but i don't think it was a, a great review to be very honest with you i'd love to talk with him more about it i mean uh i i but i'll just leave it that it was it, it, this this is response is long overdue and i hope this was helpful to people i think this is it right this is not only an ad yeah okay there, there he is um and uh and go from there i uh but anyway um i'm i'm rambling on right now and i actually have to leave so thank you for listening to this uh, for two hours. Hopefully you've learned something um, and hopefully uh, um, this can move the conversation forward. So thank you.